Bonjour and welcome to Textures, a podcast about art, design and entrepreneurship. My name is Valérie Legras. In each episode, I meet with an artist, designer, creator, innovator, individuals who add textures to our world. We discuss how they are able to make it happen. Join me in discovering their world, their work, and how they go about living and leading a life that inspires themselves and others. Today, my guest is Christina Larson. She's a sculpture artist who specializes in biomorphic, monochromatic work, and functional design. She is also a fine art appraiser, consultant, and the director of Octavia Art Gallery of New Orleans. Christina has navigated the fine art industry while continuing to wear all her hats. I'm very lucky she was able to stop today and speak with me. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for coming here. Thank you for having me, Valerie. This is wonderful. So, Christina, where do we start here? Because you are uh, wearing so many hats into the art world that... Um, I would love to, I don't know how to, to start. So we are um, with an incredible creative mind, sculpture artist, uh, using different medium, art, also functional art. You're also director of an art gallery here in New Orleans. You're also doing art consulting and art appraising. Yes, I am. Um, you know, balance is the key to life. And as a Libra, I've always tried to be balanced. Um, I love just doing and making. And so um, I've been creating art basically all my life. And I've realized that I love the creation of it as well as the business behind it. And, you know, I love to know the ins and outs And it really, they influence each other. They, each side motivates me. So as a child, uh, you know, were you raised into a creative family? So, my, yeah, my family is very creative. They're, they wouldn't call themselves artists, but my father was very hands-on. Um, he was an electrician, or he is an, an electrician. And he does a lot of woodworking. And he's, you know, I've been his partner in crime all my life, helping him build sheds or roof the house or what, whatever needed to be done. And also my mom was very crafty. We would always sit together and sew and make things for the holidays. And so they really did promote creativity in my family. And um, they okayed me going to art school in the, from the beginning. So that was, that was a big one. And uh, tell us about also your childhood. Uh, you had to be uh, casted um, and then your father built a drawing table. Yes. So when I was two years old, I was diagnosed with congenital hip dysplasia and I was bound to a body cast from my chest down to my toes and I was in a, a wheelchair, so I really wasn't able to do much. And my father saw that he just wanted to give me something to do and a way so I could enjoy my time. And so he built a drawing table that fit right onto my wheelchair. And I would spend the day just coloring and drawing. And I think that's probably what, what launched everything, you know, that, that was great. It was, it was well needed at the time. 
Yeah, I'm sure it was. So after you just, you know, you grew up and you continued to draw and then you went to art school, as you mentioned. I did. So I started out at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design. Sculpture was my major. Industrial design was my minor. I then moved on to, um, I went to Boston. I went to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts and Tufts University. And there I really focused on sculpture. I was doing a lot of welding, bronze casting, stone carving. And I was finding that as much as I really loved my end product, I wasn't so thrilled with the creation behind it because I couldn't physically touch my material. And, you know, you either have a shield between you or gloves or a torch rather than, you know, now I'm working with clay and it's... It is hands-on. Uh, when I'm hand-building, you know, it's me and gravity, and I have nothing between us. And so I really do feel like what I'm creating is my product. And so you have um, very blur lines between uh, your sculpture, and that could be also interpreted in, I mean, and maybe this is not the right word, but... Your uh, sculpture are also kind of product design, uh, and then you moved to jewelry design. I mean, everything is connected without any boundaries. Yeah, so blurring the lines is, is a big deal for me. I just, I love, I love art, and I see jewelry and product design as also being art. As a sculptor, I see things in 3D, and sometimes I feel like creating a, a tabletop sculpture. Other times, I feel like making a side table that is illuminated, or, or a pair of earrings that are just something fun for you to wear. And I see it all as, it's the same process for me. It's, it's more of just what I'm feeling at the time. And so it is about blurring those lines between art, craft, and design and not keeping them in their little separate boxes. Yeah, that makes a total sense. And then you added some, uh, you just mentioned, added some lights into your sculpture. I which, do. Yeah. yeah, so I have been using LED lights for the last couple of years. I'll create a table that is open on the top so I can illuminate it with, say, a hot pink light from inside and then put a frosted top on it so it just glows. Or I'll do a wall installation. I have one up at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art right now. It is a cloud installation in the Louisiana Contemporary Exhibition. And there are three clouds. They're clay shells mounted on the wall, and each one has a different color light that illuminates around the sides of the pieces. Yeah, that makes it very special. Yeah. So let's uh, circle back after um, when you graduated from uh, art school. So you went to New York, you work as a sculptor. Did you work with a community? Did you work on your own? What it is to be a sculptor in New York? Well, I was working for the Complete Sculptor, which is a really awesome sculpture center. At the time, they were down at Barwick and Van Dam in Tribeca. And there I, I had a studio where they just had mounds of different kinds of stone, marbles, alabaster, soapstones, you name it. And you could just go in and, you know, choose the size boulder that you want. And I was working there as well as a finisher. So I would finish other artists' stone carvings just by, you know, doing those fine details, sanding, mounting, all the nitty-gritty. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I didn't think about that, but it's a great way to learn to be a finisher or something. Yeah, you learn a lot of skills that way. Yeah. I didn't it's think. not the most glamorous job. No, but, but it's, a, it's part of a, you know, the learning process, yeah. learning curve. And so from New York, you just switched continent. Well, I really, I had a bug to travel and I, I hadn't traveled internationally that much previously. And so I, I decided that I didn't just want to take a trip, but I wanted to take a trip that would really allow me to learn all about another culture. And I decided to join the Peace Corps. And there was one position for Peace Corps volunteers that were in the arts. And that was in Morocco. Can you explain um, the Peace Corps, exactly what it is, if you can remind? Yeah, so the United States Peace Corps, um, basically it's an organization for American citizens to travel abroad for an extended period of time. Usually it's about two and a half years. And it is about being a U.S. ambassador. It is about it is about connections with people in other countries and coming back and educating people in our own com country about the people and the places that you have been. Okay. So you chose Morocco or just Morocco was open at that time? Well, Morocco chose me. Oh, um, what? <laughs> yeah. So it was the only position available for somebody in the arts. I could have gone and taught English or gone and done other projects, but I wanted to stay with my focus and art is what I love. And in Morocco, there was a position for a volunteer to work for the Ministry of Art and Culture. So basically what my job was, was to seek out artisans throughout the region and assist them with product development, uh, basic business skills, anything that I could find to help them pursue their careers in the arts. And, you know, it was very free form. Um, a lot of times we'd put, on, we'd put on workshops and, you know, teach weavers color theory or whatever, whatever made sense for the community that we were working with. So how many people were with you? Well, I was by myself, but there were 30 people in the country while I was there. And the closest volunteer to me was probably about 30 minutes away. And we would travel and, you know, put together different programs because we all had different artisans with different needs where we lived. And we all had a different skill set. So we really used all that to our advantage. I mean, there is many, many incredible artisans in Morocco. Oh, for sure. You had a blast, I guess. Oh, yeah. I came home with lots of, lots of goodies. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you uh, because you, you, of course, you're a ceramic uh, sculptor, but over there you have a lot of ceramic artists or ceramic artisans, I would say. There are. And it's, um, it's incredible how they do things with, you know, the lack of equipment that we're so accustomed to. And... There, I actually got more involved in stone carving again because it was just more accessible for me. I wasn't able to bring anything home, of course, <laughs> with the weight. But, but yeah, and I also started painting, which was not something I was ever really trained to do, but it was just another way for me to express myself. And what, what did you learn from uh, this artisan in terms of techniques? I mean, anything you, when you say you are, we are so used to our e equipment. Oh, yeah. So returning to the bases really open up your eyes? Or? Oh, yeah. I mean, so 
the artisans in Morocco, they would use all kinds of materials that they would find. So there would be antlers and horns laying around, and they would use those and create these wonderful containers for coal, which women would use for their eyeliner. And they were these gorgeous little artistic pieces. And I just, I really loved their way of using found objects and assembling them to become something else. And you were not in a big city or nearby a big city. You were kind of a middle of nowhere. I was in the middle of nowhere. I was in this little teeny place in the Arashadia province. It was called Igli, and Igli actually translates to dirty little puddle. <laughs> and it was it was a cute little little village um, of probably I don't know fifty people. So the end user was people from their community or. They were um, wish for them to bring their art or their product within big cities or abroad, because right now there is a huge demand uh, from our world, artistic world, or from customers uh, towards the Moroccan artisan skills, artisan product. There is a huge, huge demand right now. So at that time, was it the same thing, or the end user was? Is it totally confusing? Is that confusing? No? No, I, I'm with you. So, you know, that was always the hardest part of it. Everybody wanted their work to be sold in the United States. And everybody wanted, you know, as, as a volunteer, as somebody there helping them, that's what their goal was. And so it was about looking at where they are and how do we, how do we start, you know? How do we start small and grow? And... For a lot of them, it was just about us volunteers getting together and coordinating craft fairs and getting their work shown at the local souk and having products that were for the community and then products that were more for t tourism and just knowing that division line because the tourists pieces are not going to sell to the locals. The price points just wouldn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't match. Yes, that's for sure. So then you came back in the U.S. after two years and a half? About? Yeah, so then I came back to the U.S. and here I am in New Orleans. Oh, you came back directly yes. from Morocco to New Orleans. Why New Orleans? Well, I had done some hurricane relief work post-Katrina and I fell in love with the city and I met my partner and... I just decided that this is where I need to be. So when you come back in, the, in your country, how do you start? You just open up a little studio on your own in your house and you start to just work with your favorite materials or mediums and you just start making things? A little bit like that. Yes. Uh, I, found a, I found a job at a gallery and I had a studio in my home and then I, I found Hands in Clay on Magazine Street, where I had the facilities that I needed to do all my firing. And it just, it worked out perfectly. So you just mentioned that you work at, um, in a gallery. Now you are the director of Octavia Art Gallery. Uh, by the way, they just moved in an incredible location on Magazine Street. We did. <laughs> Grand opening is this Saturday. Oh, that's awesome. So... It's a little bit intimidating for people to push the door of art gallery. Uh, you have many hats. You are um, an artist yourself. You, uh, you, know, you are in, within the gallery. You do art advisory. How can you guide 
the general public who doesn't know anything about art but is attracted by, you know, they want to start a collection or they just want to, for the pleasure of it, uh, how can you kind of reassure or help people to be less intimidating? Well, it's my, my favorite thing when somebody comes into the gallery and they announce that it is their first time ever walking into a gallery. And it is my job to make them feel comfortable. I... I love that obligation of just really being able to give them my time. And I think education is key if they don't know that they're invited to your, into your space and if they don't know anything about what they're looking at, helping them to understand it and see it in their own eyes and helping them to realize that they're going to have a different experience everywhere they go. And hopefully other galleries will be as inviting. I know most of them in, in New Orleans are very inviting. Um, but yes, I, I definitely know that there are a lot of people that are intimidated to come into a gallery space, and it's it's like anything else, you know. It's it's all about viewing the works that are on the walls, and you know, seeing somebody else's creativity, and hopefully, it's inspiring. And also, some people, you know, it's hard to put a price on it, and it's hard to understand the value of art. And everyone's trying to say, well, I could do it myself or, you know, I don't understand the process or things like that, which is, you know, pretty annoying. So I really feel like that the role of galleries is really to, you know, educate that it doesn't come like that, becoming a creative mind. It's really a long process and mastering, you know, your skills, putting things together. And I understand it's hard to, 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 you know, wrap your mind around it, but I think it's a great mission. So speaking about value of art, you, not not long ago, I think, about, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, you became an art appraiser. Yes, and it's so much fun. You feel like a detective while you're I love researching. that idea. <laughs> <laughs> you do, you yes. know, it, it really is like that. You're looking at these artworks and just doing all of the research to figure out what their market value is. And I just, I decided to do that a couple of years ago because I've always, I've always collected art and I've always kind of looked into what I have and I became a little obsessed over eBay and some of the modern master prints and figuring out what was, what was real and what wasn't. And so I would go to catalog resumes and I would do the research and I would confirm the paper size, the print size, uh, whether you're supposed to have writing on the back of it or not. And all of these facts will you know, prove to you whether it is a legit Salvador Dali or a Picasso or whatever it is you're looking at. And so just with that kind of fascination, it, it sort of bloomed into this idea of I should go and study to become an art appraiser and it's great it's just a wonderful thing and I do that through the gallery so it's part of our services at, at Octavia Art Gallery and so I love it so who are your clients for uh, art appraisal so it varies a lot of times it's people who know that they have something of value and they need to insure it or they want to sell it or if somebody passes, a lot of times they need the entire estate appraised for tax purposes. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons. Uh, donation, if they're donating a work of art to a museum. Oh, yeah. 
of course. Yeah. Interesting. I really love the analogy of you being a detective. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. And, uh, but, I, I, you know, does it happen that sometimes you have nothing to grasp? On? I mean, if you have a piece of art, you know, from no, nowhere, I mean, you have nothing to grasp. I mean, how, what do you start? Yes, what do you do? that happens. And a lot of times it, the style doesn't look recognizable Nothing is really speaking to you. You can't make out the signature. There are no markings on the back. There are no clues. And, I mean, that's when you really have to turn to your friends. That's when yeah. you, can, you can look into it as much as you can and then, you know, turn to other art appraisers and other people in the business to see if anybody else has, has clues. And usually we, we figure something out one way or another. So you are yourself um, doing some a lot of exhibition right now uh, and you in the past you also did some solo exhibition uh, nationally within the US or outside of the US um, so maybe you can talk to us about the one you have you currently have oh sure so currently I have works in three different exhibitions I have As I mentioned previously, a cloud installation at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in the Louisiana Contemporary Show. I also have one sculpture at Studio Waveland in Mississippi, which is a fantastic venue. Uh, Mitchell and Erica Godday own it, and they've just done such a wonderful job. And then uh, another exhibition that just opened last weekend, Crevasse 22 in St. Bernard Parish, which is also an incredible place. It's this vast land of woods, and there's a sculpture park, and the river house is the gallery set right in the middle of it. And right now it's, it's a clay exhibition. It's called Earthworks, and it's me and about five other sculptors. I have a room to my own, so I have lots of wall pieces, installations, a table, and various sculptures. So, I mean, we really invite the... Um, listener to go on your website and go on your Instagram to see your pieces. Uh, you definitely um, get your inspiration from the body, um, how you can say that, body parts? No, body... You know, that's funny that you say that. I, I tend to, some things remind me, like I've definitely created hearts previously and things that are reminiscent of a rib cage or, but really I, I see my work as being really biomorphic. Um, it's inspired by nature, and so a lot of times they're just organic forms that could be, you know, something inspired by sea life or animals. Animals, or... yeah. You have some very good ones with, uh, you. you know, the <laughs> animals' inspiration. I really loved it. And um, so you have contrast of material, pretty, pretty intense. Contrast of color, pretty intense. Uh, and also the light really add on to your art. Everything's combined and works beautifully. But you, you don't go halfway. You really, you, you really... Um, <laughs> If you're going to do it. Yeah, do you it. really put your 100% of yourself and uh, 100% of your creativity in it. And it really, every, every piece is, makes a statement. So if you can maybe describe um, some of your favorite pieces that you created and, you know, the different material, the different color? Well, there is a piece right now that it's kind of turned into a lot of projects and a lot of various pieces. I was creating sort of this ribbon form and 
I connect this sort of large wavy ribbon and I call them my negative space sculptures. Well, this piece in particular didn't make it. So it was made out of porcelain. It cracked while it was firing. And so it came out in a few pieces. And, you know, whoops. But I love happy accidents. And I just decided to hang it on my wall and kind of look at it and see if it inspired me to do anything else. And I photographed it, posted it on social media, and had a a friend who's a designer contact me who had a client looking for interesting wall pieces. So that, that then inspired me to create two full walls for her home in addition to other wall pieces, one of them that I have at Crevasse 22 right now. But, you know, there are a lot of happy accidents that occur, especially when you're working with kilns and glazes. And, and I think, you know, celebrating that beauty in imperfection rather than feeling like it's a loss. Yes, I like that. Another artwork that I created that was exciting was I created this table called Billow. And it is a a work that uh, I was building up, just hand building, and then allowing gravity to let it slump on itself. So it was sort of a dance between my control and my hand building and this gravity wanting to slump. So I built it up as, as high as I could to the height of the kiln, fired it. It turned out beautifully. I had it painted by my auto body repair guy, which was great because you had that nice sheeny car finish. And uh, the Savannah College of Art and Design contacted me. They purchased it to put in their booth at Design Miami last year. So that was that was such a such a nice surprise. That's awesome. And then I saw in your studio um, the cube table. Yes. That are Totally different material. They are. And a mix of unexpected material together. Right. So I'm creating these cube tables. It's a basic cube made out of wood, 15 by 15 by 15. And then I am adhering tile to them. So I'm doing basic tile work. But a lot of times I'll find these really cool metallic tiles and I'll use different kind of rubbers as the grout to give it another element. Texture, yeah. Yeah, so you have this weird rubber that's almost applied like cake decoration um, against these metallic tiles. So yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition. And so when you switch from clay to this type of um, material to uh, doing lights, you, you just leave your brain running the <laughs> creative journey. I guess this is how it works. Yeah. Well, you see some things or something inspires you or you just can't get something out of your head. And that's when you know you just got to make it. You just have to buy the materials and put it together and see what it turns into and you know, you, I think you have to go with the flow. So, Christina, we spoke about the exhibition, current exhibition you're having right now. But for people who wants to buy your art uh, or your product directly, where do they have to go? Well, they can go directly to my website, www.christinalarsonart.com. Also, I have works at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in their gift shop. Um, I also have pieces at Jade Interior Design at Home Malone, and at Lucy Rose, all in New Orleans. 
Awesome. And in the meantime, I really invite our listener to go push the door of the Octavia Art Gallery. Yes, please. And meet with you. 700 <laughs> Magazine Street. And learn all about contemporary art and all the artists you represent. Well, Christina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you to Christina for taking the time to meet me and discuss her creative journey. It was a real pleasure. If you would like to learn more about Christina, visit her website at christinalarson.com. You can also follow her journey on Instagram at Christina Larson Sculpture. This podcast is an ongoing creative conversation for anyone who looks around and sees the added textures in their world and wants to know more about who is doing it. Be sure to share texture with your friends and community. You can find your preferred platform at valerielegrat.com slash podcast or you can also listen to us on Spotify. Follow so you don't miss any new episode. Thank you for listening and à bientôt.